big sisters can be a real pain. And this is a story where a big sister was extremely useful. It's one of those stories um, that seems to capture the imagination of both young and old. I'm sure it's a story you've heard uh, when you're in Sunday school, if you went to Sunday school. Now, the ruler of Egypt, uh, which is where the Israelite people were living at the time, uh, the Pharaoh, he had decreed that all the baby boys born to Israelite mothers should be killed at birth. So, you know, where's this story going to go? It's, it, it's, it, doesn't, uh, it doesn't sound as though it's uh, going to have a happy ending, does it? They were to be drowned in the River Nile. Uh, so they wouldn't be able to grow up and become fathers of lots more Hebrew children. Uh, that was the idea. He thought the Hebrew people were getting far too numerous. Uh, and so this was re- to reduce a plan to reduce the numbers of the Hebrew population. But this lady, and did you notice, we're not told her name. In fact, the only name we are told is the name of the baby. We're not told the name of her husband either. Uh, or the little girl in the story. But we know from uh, later on in the Bible that the little girl was called Miriam. This lady had a baby boy and she was determined that he was not going to be drowned. Wow, that was quick. So there's Miriam and her mother and baby Moses. She thought, I'll put him in the River Nile Just like Pharaoh said, but I'll make a small watertight cradle for him uh, so that he can float and he will be in God's hands and God will decide whether he lives or dies. Can you imagine how she felt about that? Three months old baby. And then when the police come round, I imagine this is what she was thinking, to check up on the newborns, I'll be able to say in all truthfulness that I did put him in the Nile. So that's what she did, and her daughter, whose name, as I say, we learn from elsewhere in the Bible, was Miriam. She must have been quite a little girl. I don't know how old she was. Probably less than 10 years old. Don't know. We don't know. Miriam was sent by a mother whose name was Jochebed. We learn that from elsewhere in the Bible. To keep watch. See what would happen to her baby brother. And by the way, uh, Miriam had another brother. Does anybody know what his name was? Aaron or Aaron? Yes, I know the modern pronunciation tends to be Aaron, but Aaron is the way I was taught to say it, but doesn't matter. Miriam had another brother. His name was Aaron. He was, he was, he was three at the time. We do know that from Exodus chapter 7, verse 6. You can look that up if you like. And just so as you know, their dad's name was Amram. So we've got a little family who know all the names, but they're not in this passage. And in fact, his wife, Jochebed, was actually his auntie. Isn't that interesting? Uh, his father's sister. I should think she was probably a bit older, uh, but, sorry, a bit younger than his dad. Anyway, just by chance, or was it chance? You know, I don't believe anything happens by chance in our lives. Do you? That's why I don't believe in luck. I don't believe in fate. don't believe in gambling. God was in charge of this situation. And along came the daughter of the ruler of Egypt, the daughter of the very man who had said that all the Hebrew baby boys should die. And she'd come down to the river to bathe. 
And as she swam along, she saw this papyrus basket lodged in the reeds. And she got one of her servants to see what, what it was. And guess what? A screaming baby boy. Says it was, well, he says he was crying. But you know what babies are like. Screaming baby boy, but not any old boy. A Hebrew baby boy. Three cheers for the women in the story, eh? Pharaoh's daughter's heart melted as she looked at this pitiful, hungry and des- uh, child who desperately needed a nappy change, I should think. That's probably why I was screaming. And quick as a flash, Miriam, who had been keeping a close watch on all this, pops up and offers to find a wet nurse for the child. God had surely given Miriam a brain to use and an uncharacteristic cunning for one so young. She immediately realized how her baby brother could be reunited with his mother and life, his life could be saved. Who needs big sisters? I bet Moses was glad. I said bet. I shouldn't have said that. I should think Moses was very glad he had a big sister, especially later on anyway. And I'm sure their mother was very proud of Miriam that day, as both Moses, uh, that's, the, that's the Egyptian name that um, Pharaoh's daughter gave to him. Moses means drawn out. He was drawn out of the water, remember? Both Moses and his mum suddenly became part of the royal household. And he was brought up as an Egyptian prince with all the privileges and educational opportunities that went with it. Isn't God amazing? I know that God was in control of all that happened that day. But what if Miriam had just kept quiet? But she didn't. She showed amazing courage and quick thinking, didn't she? And because of that, Moses was put in a place where God could shape his life and prepare him for the huge job that he had in mind, God had in mind for this little boy, a job that wouldn't really start for another 80 years. And that's how we first hear about Miriam in the Bible. And later on in the service, we'll be thinking about God, how God used her to, to work alongside Moses and their other brother Aaron as God released his people from slavery in Egypt, brought them to the promised land where he'd always said his people would live. Okay, thanks. So we've already seen how Miriam appears on the scene of the Bible story and how God used her, just a little girl at the time, to bring safety and blessing to the one uh, who would ultimately lead God's people, the Israelites, out of their slavery in Egypt. Generally speaking, women in the Bible aren't given very much prominence. And I guess that's why we're doing this series on women in the Old Testament. I'm sure that was simply a cultural thing for the times uh, in which they lived. But as we look at the lives of a number of women in the Old Testament over the next few weeks, I hope we'll see that in God's estimation, women certainly weren't second-class citizens by any means. Sometimes God used the women when the men were just hopeless. Can anybody think of an example? What about Deborah? Read the story of Deborah in the book of Judges. The man in the story was... He was a write-off. He was hopeless. Often we find there's an important woman somewhere in the background in, 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 in many of these stories. A woman sometimes, sometimes a little girl. Do you remember the story of Naaman, the little slave girl, who 
who served the, the Syrian army officer, the captain of the, Israel, uh, the Syrian army, Naaman. And God had put her and these other women in just the right place at the right time. And that makes an amazing difference. The prophet Micah certainly recognized Miriam's importance in the story of Israel. Micah 6 verse 4, speaking the words of God to an 8th century BC Israel, he says, I brought you up out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. I sent Moses to lead you, also Aaron and Miriam. So there Miriam is set alongside these two other important guys. We're going to look at briefly at two other passages where Miriam comes to prominence. They're the only two other passages actually really except the, the note that says where Miriam died. The first is in Exodus chapter 15, and I'm going to read a few verses, so if you'd like to follow it, it's on pages 67 and 70, sorry, 69 and 70 in your Bibles from Exodus 15. Most of the chapter is taken up with the words of a song uh, which had been composed to celebrate the deliverance of God as he had brought the whole nation safely across the Red Sea and had drowned the pursuing Egyptian army as the waters had returned to their proper place. Just let me read you a few verses. Exodus 15, verse 19. When Pharaoh's horses, chariots and horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought the waters of the sea back over them. But the Israelites walked through the sea on dry ground. Then Miriam, the prophet, Aaron's sister, took a timbrel in her hand, and all the women followed her with timbrels and dancing. Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he is, he is highly exalted. Both horse and rider has he hurled into the sea. And that's all we get of the, the words that she uh, sang. But I think we are meant to understand that Miriam and the Israelite women sang the whole of that song that we find in the preceding verses. I don't know, that's, that's my guess anyway. But I want you to notice what the Bible says about Miriam. In verse 20, she is Miriam the prophet. And what she was doing was what prophets did in Israel. She led the praises of God and received and communicated God's word for the people. And on this occasion, taken up by the Spirit, this 80 plus, knocking 90 year old, I bet you didn't click how, how old she was, this nearly 90-year-old dances and sings before the Lord. An amazing song of deliverance. Anybody up for that who's in that sort of age bracket? This elderly and powerful woman was a true leader in Israel. And you can always tell who the leaders are. How do you tell? People follow them. That's how you can tell a leader. But here's a salutary tale. By the way, that picture shows a much younger woman. That's not correct. <laughs> Moses, Aaron and Miriam were a powerful trio, each appointed by God for a specific task in the life of the community. They were powerful, they were respected, they were influential, they were loved. They were God's mouthpiece for the nation. They led the nation together. But when we come to Numbers chapter 12, we find both Miriam and Aaron in the, in the wrong so far as God's purposes are concerned. And I can't really do better than just read the story to you. So if you'd like again to turn to page 142 
Uh, Numbers chapter 12, I'll, we'll read together the first 15 verses, or I'll read the, the verses to you. Rather than just tell the story, I might as well read it to you. Numbers 12 verse 1, Miriam and Aaron began to talk against Moses because of his Cushite wife, for he had married a Cushite. Has the Lord spoken only through Moses, they asked? Hasn't he also spoken through us? And the Lord heard this. Now Moses was a very humble man, more humble than anyone else on the face of the earth. At once the Lord said to Moses, Aaron and Miriam, Come out to the tent of meeting, that's the tabernacle, all three of you. So the three of them went out. Then the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud. He stood at the entrance to the tent and summoned Aaron and Miriam. When the two of them stepped forward, he said, Listen to my word. When there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, reveal myself to them in visions. I speak to them in dreams. But this is not true of my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him, I speak face to face. Clearly, and not in riddles. He sees the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? The anger of the Lord burned against them, and he left them. When the cloud lifted from above the tent, Miriam's skin was leprous. It became as white as snow. Aaron turned towards her and saw that she had a defiling skin disease. And he said to Moses, Please, my Lord, I ask you not to hold against us the sin we have so foolishly committed. Do not let her be like a stillborn infant coming from its mother's womb with its flesh half eaten away. So Moses cried out to the Lord, Please, God, heal her. The Lord replied to Moses, If her father had spit in her face, would she not have been in disgrace for seven days? Confine her outside the camp for seven days. After that, she can be brought back. So Miriam was confined outside the camp for seven days, and the people did not move on till she was brought back. Aaron and Miriam had ganged up on their younger brother, Moses. They used a false pretext to have a go at him. The fact that his wife was a foreigner, a Cushite, it says. Now, there's a bit of uncertainty here because Moses' wife, Zipporah, uh, whom he married when he fled from Egypt to Midian, was obviously not an Ethiopian or a Nubian, which is what Cushite would normally be taken to mean. Midian was basically the Arabian Peninsula, the other side of the Red Sea. Whether Cush applied to a wider region in those times, and therefore the woman in contention was actually Zipporah, or whether Moses had married a second wife who was a Nubian, we shall probably, well I'm certain we shall never know. In any case, this was just a red herring, because the real issue in the minds of Miriam and Aaron was all to do with their prophetic role. They were jealous of Moses' special relationship with God. Hmm. There we go. I hadn't clicked it hard enough. God had clearly spoken through Moses, but what about them? Hadn't God also spoken through them? 
They wanted a slice of the action too. And what's more, I think we're meant to infer from the story that Miriam was the real culprit here because it was she whom God singled out for punishment. Please don't think I'm having a go at women. You could easily sort of take that from the way uh, I'm angling this talk. But it could equally have been Aaron. But maybe Miriam was the stronger of the two characters. I think she probably was. And suddenly she becomes a leper. A person with no place in the society of Israel. One who had to live in isolation from normal life. She was cut off. And only as she and her brother submitted to the status and role that God had given to Moses was she healed and allowed back to her proper place. What a sad turnaround for someone who was so important. One who had stood alongside none other than Moses himself, had spoken on behalf of God, and who had led Israel's worship of their God, the God who had saved them from slavery. Now, I don't, think this, I don't think this is an easy lesson for any of us to take on board. I guess different church traditions handle leadership in slightly different ways because I'm going to refer it to where we are and the situation of us as a community and the leadership and the giftings within our community. I guess different church traditions handle leadership in, in slightly different ways. But what we've got here is the tension between a role to which God has appointed someone through the gifting he has put upon them on the one hand and the authority of a God-appointed leader on the other hand. Miriam and Aaron were hugely gifted individuals. But they confused their standing in the nation. Aaron as a high priest. And Miriam, as the nation's worship leader and prophet, important that that was, with the overall oversight and leadership that God had placed upon their younger brother Moses. And for me, it raises the whole issue of where authority lies in the church. Who carries the can? Where does the buck stop? And I can assure you that it's an issue that affects many church traditions, not least the Baptist tradition to which I belong, where sometimes the church meeting might fail to recognise the ordination of their pastor and think that they can treat him or her as they like. And if they think like that, it's actually a travesty of what Baptists really stand for or claim to stand for. We believe that the church meeting is the place where the church fellowship discerns the will of God. But sadly, sometimes it becomes simply a democracy where anyone's opinion is just as valid as anyone else's. And what they forget, or what we forget sometimes, is that it is God's opinion that really matters. And it is the church's duty to seek God's face and come to a mind about what he is actually saying to his church. And I'm sorry if you think I'm using Baptist churches to make a point, but actually I think the same sort of thing can happen in any church tradition uh, where individuals think they know better than anyone else. Where they even think they know better than God. Miriam and Aaron were jealous of Moses because as God himself says in verse 8, with him I speak face to face, clearly and not in riddles. He sees the form of the Lord. And I think there are two issues here. The first, to do is, the first is to do with God's giftings. 
The second is to do with on whom God is pleased to place his mantle of authority. God gives spiritual gifts to all his children, without exception. And those gifts are for the building up of the church. If I have a gift, it's not just for me or to make me look good. It's for you and I need to exercise and develop that gift. But sometimes different giftings can come into conflict. I have a friend who is in ministry who has a prophetic gift. When he was just a member of the congregation of his church, before he um, came into leadership, the leadership of his church would occasionally ask him to preach. But they always wanted to vet the script of his sermons before he gave them. I wouldn't accept that, would you? And that created awkwardness, as you can imagine. Tension. Why did they do that? They did it because they didn't trust him to be orthodox in what he might say. According to their lights, I should say. They wanted to control his prophetic gift, despite the fact that scripture teaches us that the spirits of the prophets should be under the control of the prophets. 1 Corinthians 14 verse 32 not those who do not have prophetic gifts. And that often includes leadership in the churches. But it can work the other way around too. Maybe those who are prophets, those who hear and understand the word of the Lord for his church, maybe they become suspicious of those they deem to be less spiritual. I'm sure some of us have come across that kind of thing. Maybe they are less spiritual. Maybe they're not. So distrust results. What we have always to remember is that whatever gift you or I may have, it's for the church, it's not for me. And I need to be in submission and submit that gift to the church, the whole church. None of us has the same set of spiritual gifts. And even the more obviously spiritual gifts can be used in unspiritual ways. Maybe to apply undue influence on the church. Saying, in effect, you've got to listen to me because I'm more spiritual than you. Ever come across that? Maybe they don't say quite those words, but that's what, that's what they mean. Or, I've heard from God directly, or the Lord says, the Lord has spoken. And believe me, it happens. You, I'm sure some of you have come across that. On the other hand, the apparently unspiritual leadership can be afraid of those who operate in the spirit, so to speak. But whatever your gift is supposed to be for the common good, as Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 12, 7, there should be no anxiety about the gifts of others. There should be no jealousy about the fact that you don't have a gift someone else has got. 1 Corinthians 12, 11, all these are the work of one and the same spirit, and he distributes them to each one just as he determines. So where does that place leadership in the church? The analogy with Moses' position in the nation. Leaders are appointed by God. Paul says that in Romans. And it's crucial that we understand and acknowledge that, especially as a new pastor is about to be chosen and appointed in this church. Leaders have their individual skill sets, and spiritual gifts, and we hope that the church will discern what gifts are needed as they go through the interview process and ultimately appoint someone. But he or she won't have all the gifts, 
that are needed to lead a church. Why? Because leadership is a community matter. Leaders are appointed to lead, but they still need their Aarons and Miriams to stand with them if they're to be effective. And woe betide any leader who thinks they can do it all on on their own. Nonetheless, I believe it's a unique role. In my view, for what it's worth, uh, there should be a plurality, plurality of leadership. But in the pattern we and many other churches have chosen to follow, we will be looking for a person whom we recognize to have the anointing of God upon them for that task. And that person, when appointed, stands in an unassailable position. That's not to say they will be perfect. It's not to say they will be sinless. But their ministry is unique and it is not allowed to be, it is not to be challenged by those who would aspire to edge in on it or who through jealousy would want to lessen the importance of that leadership. Another friend of mine, not the same friend, once said to me that he could accept criticism against his person. He was in ministry too. He could accept criticism against his person, but not against his ministry. His place as the leader of the church to which God had called him. And I think that's right. Sort of response we saw in Moses, more humble than anyone else in the face of the earth. You can say what you like to me, but when it comes to the position that God has placed me in, that's different. Someone who allowed God to fight his battles for him. One who didn't sit on his high horse, but who submitted him or herself to God's judgments. And that's hard to do, especially when you're being run ragged by people who may have a point. Now, I would have loved to have spoken wholly positively about Miriam. She was a hugely gifted and powerful woman of God. And I I think she came good as she spent that week as an outcast, but she had a tough lesson to learn. Let her legacy for us be that we don't fall into the same kind of trap that she fell into. Let's all submit all that we have and all that we are first to the Lord and then to one another. That the church might grow and each one be blessed by the calling and gifting of each other. A little later on as we prepare to share communion together, let's take to heart the willingness of Aaron and Moses, uh, Miriam and Aaron to admit failure and to seek reconciliation. But let's also remember the grace that Moses displayed to both of them as all three of them stood under God's judgment. As we share the peace, may our hearts be softened towards each other. And let us allow ourselves to admit that we are sinners as well as being sinned against. And if we share the peace with someone with whom we don't get along well, heaven forbid, but it happens, let's carry in our hearts, if not on our lips, the words that Moses said. He said, please God, heal her. Please God, heal him. Please God, heal me. To the praise of his glory and grace. Amen.